Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women's Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Welcome, everybody, to the Stitch Please podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. And as I say for every episode, this is a very special episode. But this one is especially, specially special. It's hard for me to summarize who Rita Dove is and what Rita Dove does. But I can show you just a little tiny thing that might help. It is this. Do you see this? This is the collected poems of Rita Dove from 1974 to 2004. And if you would think that a gorgeous, rich anthology of nearly more than two decades of poetry weren't enough, she also had a book that just last month was on the top 10 of new books we recommend. And that was her playlist for the apocalypse. In addition to being one of the first Black folks to get a Pulitzer Prize, of being an advisor to the Library of Congress and the Poet Laureate of the United States and on juries for really prestigious prizes, I am certain that some of her poetry is on the SAT and the AP exam. She also sews her own clothes. She sews. So when I started here, we're both colleagues at the University of Virginia, and I thank you so much, Rita, for indulging me in this conversation. But when I first got here, I was minding my own business in Joanne Fabrics. And I look up and I was like, oh my gosh, I think that's Rita Dove. That is it. It was so much fun. It was not something that I expected. And so it has been just a delight in the time that I've gotten to know you. This has been so much fun. Thank you and welcome Rita Dove. Thank you, Lisa. And I must say it's an indulgence for me to be able to be on this podcast and to talk with you because... Uh, you know, there are people out there who don't sew, and I pity those folks. But I just have loved over the years watching, seeing all of your creations and your inventiveness and just being able to, to dive into and talk about fabric. It's a great indulgence. And I also have to give a shout out to my cousin, Missy, who told me to tell you hello because she texted me after she read your interview in the New York Times, the one where you talk about your, your favorite books. And I think one of the questions was, what book would a reader be most surprised to find on your bookshelf? And you had down Secrets from High Fashion Sewing. Yes. And I was like, <laughs> I think I have that book too. That's a good book. And so I was like, you know, that's right. She does So Let me just see if she has a minute. She probably doesn't, but have a minute to talk with me about it. So thank you so much and welcome. And hello from my cousin. Thank you and hello. Hello, Missy. <laughs> to get started, how would you define what your sewing story is? When did it begin? I know I've read some of your earlier work and you talk about like falling in love with books and reading and imagery and literature as a young child. But what role did sewing play in that? And also you said your mother was also a seamstress. And so I'm wondering if you were able to see this as simply labor or as something more than that. Oh, sewing has been with me as long as books have been with me. And which is to say it, it was in the home and it was never a feeling of labor. It was a feeling uh, I got the sensation of inventiveness and a, a way of letting creativity come out. My mother was a seamstress. She had worked in a dress shop when she was young. 
though for her it began as labor, it was a dress shop, which meant doing alterations and, and, and doing things like that. But for her own work when she was young, this meant tearing linings out of coats, right? And making dresses out of them. So I have photographs of my mother when she was in her club hopping days. I mean, she has these gorgeous dresses made out of satin and stuff. And I'm like, what? And she goes, oh, that was a lining of somebody's coat they didn't want anymore. And I just made mess up a dress. And so I always knew that you could take materials and if you knew how to handle them, you could make something glorious out of them. I appreciate so much about the transformative powers of sewing. That's one of, that's one of the things that I was really drawn to it. The idea of starting with like some yard goods and maybe some thread or whatever, and then you end up with a suit or a jacket or something like that. Like the idea of transforming something into something else. I also appreciate how you are able to kind of separate what some would consider drudgery. Instead, elevate that part that really feeds your spirit. I just really appreciate that part of the creative process and how it shows up in lots of different ways. And like in some of your works, you do talk a bit about sewing. And like one of my favorites I was saying to you earlier is my mother enters the workforce. And it just feels like even though her days in that poem felt like they were day work and evening work, there was the blue shoes. There was the thing she was able to get with the sewing that put a smile in her heart. And that's the thing that I really appreciate about some of the power of creativity. Something else you said that was surprising So when you think about all the sewing projects that you've made, including the lovely dress you have on right now, I love a twist tie front. I love it. I really do. Of all the sewing projects that you've made, which ones stand out to you as the most like, pow? Are they things that are like simple that you just enjoy sewing? And it's like, this is a quick thing I can do. Or do you have some garments you can even look back in the past and say, I did something really amazing. If asked to single out One garment, I guess it would probably be the one that I have on display back here, which I found still in my closet. Most of them are in storage. But because of of the special situation, I wore this to Carnival in Venice. And what happened was that these friends of ours who were quite well off had invited us to Carnival in Paris and they had a suite and all this stuff in it. It was one of those crazy things that, you know, I was on leave that year and I thought, I mean, you got to go to Carnival, right? But everybody else had these outfits with real sequins, rhinestones. I mean, they had like couture stuff. And I knew that I couldn't compete with that, you know, and I wasn't going to spend all that money for one. So that meant trying to find materials, putting them together. So this was really put together out of like three or four different patterns and a little bit of improvisation. It's a skirt I just, you know, the skirt you just put together, gathered skirt, that's no big deal. But also finding materials, fabrics that I had that I hadn't used yet. Like for instance, the blouse, which is see-through. I loved that, but I, I had no use for it. You can't wear it to a poetry reading where people will wonder what kind of skank you are. You can't teach in it, but I loved the fabric. And so I said, this is for Carnival. So in the end, I ended up making that outfit a, a velvet cape long to the ground, which you can't wear anywhere else, but it's great for sweeping through the canal, you know, along the canal. I, I made about five or six crazy outfits for me and for Fred, for my husband. He has a matching vest. I'm going to grab it 
It's over here. And so what she's describing, y'all, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you get to see this gorgeous outfit that she made. And I like that front cross lacing. I always think that that's such an interesting structure. Did you do eyelets for that or did you do grommets? Do you remember? I did eyelets. And it's true to the the century in which I was trying I was trying to call up the idea that women wore corsets. It's not a corset per se, but it has that look. And, yeah, you know, it definitely, definitely has the look. Yeah, definitely. And a little, little peplum. For my husband, who was going to, who bravely wore gold colored leggings, you know, stockings and the little puffy pants. I don't even know what they're called. Oh my gosh. And a jacket, which you're Subscribers can see, which is matching to the corset. That is lovely. It was really fun to combine all that kind of stuff, to know that I had used material, salvage materials that I loved and put them together with this thing and, and made something that could stand up to all of the ones that had commissioned. I mean, I would be hard pressed to see where you were outdone, but, you know, I wasn't there. So I, I think you did pretty fantastically. And that I do appreciate that kind of the illusion of the corset without the corset itself. It really does pull the whole piece together and the sleeves, really. Bravo. Well, thank you. Thank you. So that was fun to do. It sounds like it was fun. I can see the love in the piece. You know, that's it's like, it looks like to me that there's a lot of care, even as you like hybridize this garment from three different pattern sections or three different blocks and different fabrics from salvaged garments. That is something that not a lot of folks do anymore. It started to come back as people are thinking about sustainability and recycling and upcycling. But mm-hmm. you've done it even before that. I was really excited that you made his wedding suit. For your wedding. Yes, I did. I am trying to understand and would love to hear more about that. Of all the things to do when one decides to get married, making the outfits for the spouse, mind blown. So tell us about that. How'd that come about? Well, the thing is, is that we had a very small wedding. We were married by the Justice of the Peace, uh, actually by the mayor of uh, Valeria, Ohio, who was a woman. And that's why we decided to let her do this. But So it was a a small affair, but for us, it was really a joyous affair. And at that time, my husband, Fred, was teaching at Oberlin College, and I was a faculty wife. I was just out of graduate school. I was, you know, doing this kind of things. And I was experimenting a lot with folklore patterns. And uh, so I ended up making a dress, uh, an Afghani nomad dress. I, I was I was really interested in how other cultures solved the problems of the human body, you know, with fabric, putting in fabric. How do you get around the boobs and what do you do here? So I was doing a lot of experimenting, too, with the nature of fabrics and how you can handle a fabric. I had never tried a man's suit. Fred kept saying, I'm not wearing some straight lace navy blue thing. You know, he didn't want to wear a suit at all. So I said, what about if I make you a suit that's like out of lavender, lavender kind of velvet. And he said, that sounds good. <laughs> First the lavender and then you threw in velvet. And so it was on. Yeah, it was on. It was like Liberace. And those were, our, of course, our hippie days. And so I and I had found the material. You know, of course, you find the fa- I found fabric and said, I can do this. <laughs> you know, and then you know, I got the patterns. And then and it really I luckily I had given myself lots of time. But it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. I mean, tailoring and seamstressing, there are different kinds of things. All I can say is that it looked great on him. I would never show anyone the insides of that thing. 
but it looked good on him. And that's all that matters. And I will never, ever put another sleeve into a man's outfit again. That is really delightful. And also the idea that you're like, I've never, I've never made a man's suit before, but if I'm going to try for the first time, why not for my wedding? You know, honestly, let me just start at a what, really low bar, low stake. <laughs> well, there were fall bars. There were fall bar back, you know, things. But, but you've done a lot of uh, wonderful things for your family, for your husband and for your sons. And so my, and every time I see one, I say, oh, honey, I mean, men's garments, my hat really goes off to you. Well, I thank you. I, I love it. I really enjoy it. I've always, and I like what you phrase it, the kind of solve the problem, solve for the problem of the human body. Mm-hmm. And I think garments and apparel really does do that. And, and it feels so unfortunate that it seems like choices for men are so limited. Like women have lots of different choices, but men have far fewer. And so it means that I'm kind of showing the same thing over and over again. And so I am looking into ways to kind of, you know, spice things up. And I have a new jacket pattern that, I'm, that, he, that he wanted for the fall. So I got it laid out. I'll probably start cutting it this weekend. You're listening to the Stitch Please podcast. And I'm talking today with Rita Dove, a Pulitzer Prize winning poet, poet laureate of the United States, holder of 28 honorary degrees, who also sews her own clothes. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation about the connection between poetry and sewing right after this break. Stay tuned. Black Women Stitch and the Stitch Please podcast are happy to announce that we have another way to connect with our community. In addition to the IG Lives that we do every Thursday at 3 p.m., we also now have a club on Clubhouse. That's right, friends. They done messed up and given me the chance to have a club. Follow Black Women Stitch on Instagram and now on Clubhouse Thursdays at 3 p.m. on Instagram and 3.45 p.m. on Clubhouse Eastern Standard Time. And we'll help you get your stitch together. You're listening to the Stitch Please podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Wolfork, and I'm talking today with Rita Dove, a fantastic poet, with decades and decades of fantastic and life-affirming poetry. She is an icon in literary history and in the study of poetry. I'm delighted to be able to talk with her today. And we're going to talk now about the connections between poetry and sewing. And another thing I was wondering about was, do you see any parallels between sewing, like the construction of a garment, and say other creative acts like building a poem. If you were to think about metaphors for creating poetry, I know some people tend to think more visually, but if there was a way, and I know sometimes thinking about sculpting, so there's all sorts of metaphors that you that people use to animate the art of poetry. Do you see any connections that might be meaningful between the needle arts and the sewing arts? This is a fascinating question. It's one in which I, I've been kind of wrestling with trying to show those connections because they are there. I think that to make us seem just right with the right tension, uh, bobbin tension and the right width of the scene is somehow analogous to the way in which a line floats across the page. Do you detect that it is a line or is it 
seamless. You know, does it flow into the next and yet at the same time reverberate against lines that are above it and below it? And I think that that's what a perfect scene does. It's beautiful in itself. You see the scene, you say you the line, but you don't think of it as utilitarian. You don't, you know, because it's not puckering, it's not pulling, it's not, you know. And so every time I sew a scene, I also think about that pacing that you need too when you're when you're feeding it through. And that is so similar to what happens when I kind of move along the rhythms of a line of poetry. If it's right, if it turns correctly, doesn't yes. fit together. You know, there's a, I mean, the, the, the analogies are all there, but doesn't, you know, does it fit together? And then there is that, that thing too where if I'm writing a poem that is a narrative that tells a story, but at the same time is supposed to have uh, echoes, you know, or, or backstory and all this stuff happening at the same time. I often think about the way in which a zipper works, an invisible zipper works. Mm. And suddenly everything comes together. Everything comes together in, on the body in a poem that is supposed to, to just close perfectly and at the same time reverberate. It zips. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I am here for it. I am really here for it because I've been thinking a lot about thread. I've been thinking a lot about sewing and something that I've been teaching actually for a class I'm doing next semester. It's called Sally Hemings University. That's the name of the class. And it talks about what would it mean to center a university on a marginalized enslaved woman rather than her rapist white slave owner. And Part of the thing that I'm interested in is a liberatory strategy that I'm calling forecrafting. Forecrafting, instead of forecasting, but forecrafting. And I have two models for that. The first one is um, Joshabed, who is um, Moses' mother. And remember, she, she made the basket for him. And I thought, for me, that act of weaving that basket together, weaving that basket, not knowing, knowing that her child was going to face certain death, and she knew that to keep him safe, she had to push him away, right? And so there's something about the prayer of that crafting of the basket, putting the baby in it and just praying that it all works out. Mm -hmm. And I see something similar in Sally Hemings' own work as a seamstress on the plantation, but also a 14-year-old girl who is kind of like stuck in France with this man who wants her to go back. She's pregnant and is like, I don't know if I want to go back. And then negotiating as her son's, you know, his son, as Madison said, extraordinary privileges, which included the liberation of her children, knowing that she would never see it herself. Right. And there's something about that. And then to be a month who I'm, I'm partnered with has this wonderful exhibit called Held Breath. It was down at the Welcome Gallery and it's gorgeous. This this eye and all of these beams of light and breath. Each strand connects to a person's name or a community that survived attacks of white supremacy. And if they didn't survive, the thread stops. But if they did survive, it goes on. It's incredible. There's just so much, I think, in there in the theory of craft about Black women's history. Mm -hmm. that I don't think that we spend enough time thinking about it, I don't think, as much as, you know, I think that there's obviously, you know, poets. I often think about Lucille Clifton's Quilting, which is that poem, that the reply poem, that poem reply. Talked about that in class. The poem reply, y'all, I'll, I'll put a link to it. It's 
this horrible letter that W.B. Du Bois gets in the mail. And in the poem, they ask, you are a person that we have been told is an expert on Negroes. And we are studying emotions and want to know if Negroes cry tears. And the poem that Clifton writes is just two words for every, like, they do, we do, she tries, we try. It's just gorgeous. And I think that that same kind of rhythm. Another thing I was thinking about what you said was about the tension of the stitch. I think we could easily take that for granted when it's going right. Absolutely. When it's going right, it's like, oh, that's just the way it is. But then you yeah. look up and it's like, wait, I've been sewing with air Because the thread has run out. And that kind of perfect balance between the top and bottom thread that you're not meant to see the top thread from the bottom or the bottom from the top. That tension of language, I think, is something that I really appreciate about what you do with your work. And I was thinking about it, particularly with the, with the poem about the girls following that gaggle of girls down by the village school. <laughs> and I was like, I know what she's talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking Well, you know, isn't that that fine balance that I think African-Americans have, we have had to learn how to create and to walk in order to survive. I mean, it's, it's that balance between knowing and not sharing it to anyone else who is not in the know. If you don't know, then you are a part of this thing. If you know, you know the underside as well. That kind of balance that builds up the blues that gives us that, that great sense of humor that we have, <laughs> that we need. That we need. Absolutely. Rita, I am so grateful to you for your time. This has been so beautiful. I want to know what's next for you. Like, So are you on a book tour? Are you like, what's happening with the book? I, I don't even, what is pandemic publishing like for a poet these days? Well, you know, what's interesting is that if the pandemic writing is actually very good. I mean, in, in the sense that you, of course, you take your lemon and you make lemonade out of it, but also the kind of intimacy, the kind of being of isolation in order to do the work is something that as a writer, I'm, I'm kind of scrabbling to get anyway. So it was given to me or imposed upon me. And I said, OK, I'll, I can deal with this. I think I dealt with it better than a lot of people who aren't so inclined. Publishing is another diff- a thing, of course. I've discovered that just you know, the thread. And again, it's that thread that you invisible thread between reader and a writer is sometimes reinforced by going out into and actually speaking words and being a storyteller and actually giving readings. And to give a reading over Zoom is just not the same. It's, it's, it really isn't. I mean, we make do with what we have to do, but, and you know this from teaching, you pour everything in, out into the screen and it just just goes away. You don't know. You don't know what, you know, what it feels like. And so it's very draining. And yet I also recognize, mainly through my students who were all writing poems as well, how necessary it was. And so you do send it out into the air. It's sort of, in a way, like Sally Hemings, knowing that, you know, security freedom for her children, but knowing that, you know, she couldn't enjoy it. You send that out there and you say, okay, I give it to you and I have no idea I'm not going to get much back from it, but I, I, the knowledge that you got it maybe will help me. It's something that I think as though as a, as a Black woman, I think that I've been schooled in this for a long time, you know, so the pandemic is really rough, but we know how to walk that line. I've had a lot of time to think of, you know, of course, all of us have during the pandemic. And as I go through these various publishing things, these, you know, kind of interviews and, and Zooms and stuff like that, 
I find myself thinking back to not only my mother, you know, who would salvage those things and make these things, but I realized that the line went, you know, went back even further. My grandmother, who who was a milliner, actually, she put together hats for for church ladies, and you know, oh, that is a fierce and coveted and prestigious job. You cannot just put on anybody's hat. And it's quite a skill. I mean, as a child, when my grandmother, uh, my grandfather just died and I was about 12, 13 or something like that. And I, and I spent the weekends with her and I would watch her build those hats. And uh, in fact, there's a poem in my book, Thomas and Beulah, which is all about those hats. And it ends, oh, intimate parasol that teaches us to walk with grace along beauty's scene. And it's that walking with grace along beauty's scene. This is that balance. This is our, this is, this is the theme. We walk, right? And we've learned to walk and that we give on further that thread. And on that note, my goodness, thank you so much. Y'all, we've been speaking with Rita Dove, who is an American genius and just, amazing and all the things i will try to put some of the things i can't put all of the things in the show i'll put some because she's trust me amazing and i think that now i'm going to be thinking about walking along that seam the seams that our grandmother sewed for us that our mother sewed for us that we sew for those who who will be coming behind us that we truly this with them in trusting that they will know what to do because we've helped guide thank you for that and for this time this and enjoy your outfit love it You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcast directories or services allow for reviews, but for those who do, for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments, if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the Stitch Please podcast, that is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together.